through the lens of narrative therapy, we're looking at people being defined and their identities being authored within larger systems and communities. Hi, everyone. This is Ben Guest, and welcome back to the Creativity, Education, and Leadership podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Travis Heath. Travis is a psychologist and associate professor at the University of Denver. He specializes in a form of therapy called narrative therapy. At the beginning of the episode, Travis references the book I wrote, Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball, and we come back to it several times throughout the episode. So if you're interested in that, you can pick it up on Amazon. It's called Zen and the Art of Coaching Basketball. Enjoy my conversation with Travis Heath. Travis, thank you so much for coming on. It's it's great to be here. You know, I just uh, I just finished your book as well. So so the time. Oh wow! In regard. Yeah. Oh man, it's great. That's... I loved it. As you know, when you put work out there and people respond to it, it's the best feeling. It, yeah, no, it's a it's a really good story. Um, it's uh, it's well told, but the story itself, like you know, if you have if you have a, a good story but it's poorly told you know, that's not great. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have much of a story, even if you tell it well, but you know, you have mm-hmm. both, you, you have like a great, really, I should say stories, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's dating back to what middle school, uh, your mm-hmm. middle school coaching days. So mm-hmm. all the way up to, to the pro league. So um, there's a series of stories really that are interconnected and uh, really well told. So, so I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I sort of had a realization recently that my overarching interest is storytelling, which of course dovetails nicely with what you do, narrative mm-hmm. therapy and the, and the stories that we tell ourselves. Right, let's, so let's start there. What is narrative yep. therapy? Yeah, great question. I had a, a former chair of mine ask me like, well, what's your elevator pitch? You know, give me a 30 second pitch on narrative therapy. Oh God, you know, how do you take what's a big part of your life's work and distill it down into 30 seconds? Although I found it to be a useful exercise. A good place I found to start is, um, be careful of the stories you tell about yourself and that others tell about you because eventually they'll live you. And, you know, when I share that, especially in the United States, um, people hear the part, be careful of the stories you tell about yourself. They hear that part and they go, oh, the self-fulfilling prophecy, which yes, that is a part of it for sure. Also though, there's the stories that others tell about you, which is crucial because um, and when I say others, I don't necessarily mean just like people we know, you know, like our parents or, um, you know, our friends, although those are others who tell stories about us. But there's also stories told about us and our identity statuses in the world um, by larger uh, sort of societal contexts, right? So a simple one would be, what does it mean to be a man in the world? And often, you know, discourses around what it means to be a man are so deeply embedded in the culture that we don't even think that they might be challengeable, right? So they just become truth. But in essence, what they really are is they're a story, right? So to circle back to the idea of what narrative therapy is, rather than focusing on trying to find diagnostic labels for people or something like that, I'm much more interested in the stories that come to define people's lives. And I'm interested in helping people tease out uh, stories that are preferred stories that make sense to them within their own story arc of their life, and then also stories that might be told a, a, about them against their will, right? That they never consented to that are actively, often negatively impacting their lives. And when we can start to tease those out and then help people begin to story their lives in ways that are more preferred, often we get outcomes uh, that are much better. But there's one other thing I'll add, which is that and thinking about like the history of narrative therapy co-created by Michael White and David Epstein, it, it's really not about so much about the individual, right? It's about a person that exists within larger communities. And that, you know, when we turn this uh, work of what I do, we call it therapy, or at least that's what we've called it uh, for the last 100 years or so. It's not as though healing wasn't happening before psychotherapy existed, right? That's a preposterous claim. But often within like clinical psychology and psychiatry, it's a very individualist practice. It's like, I'm going to heal what's wrong inside of you. But, but through the lens of narrative therapy, we're looking at people being defined and their identities being authored within larger systems and communities. Right. So we had a great off-air conversation a couple of weeks ago, and, and I think we both really just 
clicked with with our thoughts about the world and mindset and so forth. And as I was preparing for this interview and, and doing some more research, it strikes me that your work is a combination of two things. So you talked about the stories people tell themselves and the stories that the are told to them. And so it seems that last point that you just made, a lot of your work is what is the story or what are the stories that the greater cultural context, institutions, structure, history are telling people, right? So that's that's the, the context side. But to the individual side, it's it's your work is rooted in, I think, the dignity of each individual. Yeah. I love how you were framing the question there and you said story in the singular and then you very quickly corrected it to stories plural. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate that because all of us are, are multi-storied, right? Um, and what happens oftentimes is we come to be defined by single stories, you know, and, and that's problematic in, in its own ways because, you know, we, we might think it serves us well, but for, for example, as an athlete and, and most especially a basketball player in high school into college, that became the single story about my identity, which was fine until I got to college and found out I wasn't as good at basketball as I thought I was, you know, and I wasn't gonna play in the NBA. Well, now I have a hell of a problem, don't I? Because this single story has come to define who I am. So I, I have, and you know, so it worked for me for a bit, but it became problematic and, and to be honest, I never was single story. I wasn't actually single story. There was just one story that came to disproportionately define who I thought I was. So I really appreciate how you went from story to stories just in the framing. To, to the question of dignity, gosh, I love that word. And it's pretty sad, Ben, that I, I'm thinking of the timeline here. I, I, think, um, I think I'm being fair when I say for the first decade of my formal training, becoming a psychologist and so forth, I never heard that word once used in my training, which I don't blame the individual professors. To me, this is a systemic thing, right? It's about what the, uh, the story uh, the, or the stories that exist in uh, clinical counseling psychology, psychiatry, right? But then I met David Epson, one of the co-founders of Narrative Therapy, and very early on in coming to know him, he used that word frequently. You know, how, how do we work with people in ways that maintain and enhance their, their dignity, right? And I remember hearing that word and hearing him use it. And it just, it stopped me, you know, you know, one of those moments and that, yes, like that's, that's what I want. I want people to feel dignity in the ways in which their stories are being told and they're coming to understand their stories. And so uh, it, I'm so glad you used that word because that, to be honest, that really shifted my career when I, when I came to think, especially working with people tied up in the system, for example, right? It's like, how do I uh, create ways of conversation working with people that maintains their dignity and, and in some ways maybe redignifies them as a human being? And so it, that's at the core of my work. And the reality is we can we can help we can help tell stories that are dignifying, or we can help tell stories that are a whole lot of other things. And and it's not that one's life actually shifts. It's just the way that we tell the story about one's life, right? And so people will often say to me, well, that happened in the past. I can't change it. While I do believe that that's literally true, that you can't go back and change an event that happened, but you can story that event differently. And when we begin to story that event differently, no, it doesn't change the event itself, but it does come to change how we understand it, how it impacts our life going forward. So in that way, storying is actually a way to change our relationships at the very least with the past. And sometimes it just really changes the past because the story is so different and then we feel so differently about it. One of the things in my formal training that I didn't like so much when people had been through trauma, we just talk about the trauma ad nauseum, you know, over and over again. Not, not that it's not important to talk about trauma, it absolutely is. But, you know, there were questions missing in there. Questions like, how, how is it that you've survived this? Because you know, I have a sense that if I would have gone through it, I'd be, and I mean this quite literally in some cases, I'd be lying dead or close to dead in a gutter someplace. And yet you're here talking with me about how, you know, you're, you're dedicated and committed to moving your life forward. That's pretty remarkable that you've gotten here. 
I want to understand how that's happened, right? And if we start telling that story, not ignoring the trauma as though it didn't happen, the trauma is a real story. It's one of the stories that has impacted the person's life. But how we tell that story can totally change the trajectory of how people come to understand themselves and themselves in the larger systems of the world. I think that piece about the past is so key in that we can't change the past. We can't change the events of the past, but we can change the story that those events tell us and that we tell ourselves. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes I'll bring that up and people will be like, well, that's, you know, that's disingenuous or it's, it's not real. I suppose it, we could try and tell it in a way that's not real. You know, like I, I think about things like toxic positivity, for example, I don't find that way of interacting with the world to be particularly, particularly helpful, you know, just like everything's going to be great. And no, people don't buy that shit. Like the reality is people don't buy it. So the story has to um, look any good story. Think about any good story you've ever read or, or taken in in some way you watched it or whatever, however you took it in the story. I mean, it has to have moments where you wonder if the characters in the story are going to make it right there has there has to be these and more than one right it, you know it's not it's not a very three-dimensional story if the story arc is like you know like the 90s sitcoms that we grew up with you know what i mean right. the full houses and stuff where there's like one uh, piece of adversity and yeah. you know they they you feel it for a minute and then they come through and have the Hollywood ending with all of them smiling. Well, that's not how life works. And so the stories we really enjoy, usually they're rich stories because they're, they're uh, you know, ups and downs of adversity, right? So you have to tell that part of the story. That's real. But there are dignified ways to, to come to tell those stories and to understand them, right? And, and there are parts of those stories that often get ignored you know, and there are other parts that, uh, you, you know, who, who was it in your book? Was it Vincent? Was Vincent the player who didn't play, right? Who yep. didn't play much. I, I was immediately taken in from the beginning of the book by his story because, and maybe this was my time around the NBA or whatever. I was always interested in talking to the, the guys who, you know, were last on the bench because they had, you know, everyone in Denver, for example, everyone would go to Carmelo, you know, during that time or AI or whoever. I mean, I'd be more interested in, uh, you know, talking to the Johan Petros of the world. You know, the, he was from France, if, if you don't know who Johan Petros, he was an interesting dude. And, and no one was talking to these dudes. And they have stories. Now, now one story could be, oh, you're, la you're a scrub at the end of it. Of course, no one at the end is a scrub. That's a joke. But that's, the, the, you know, the story might be. But actually, no, there are rich stories to be told about people, their lives, of course, outside of basketball, but even within the context of basketball, because they play important roles and the systems they're in, in this case, a team, right? But those stories don't get told. So that, that's something else I'm always interested in is what are the stories that aren't being told here and finding those stories. Uh, and each one of us in our lives have stories that aren't being told or, or are um, being told in a sort of one dimensional way and not in a way where we can experience and really appreciate the full beauty of it, if that makes sense. 100%. And that, again, it goes back to, to dignity, right? The dignity of each individual story. In, in my doing documentary filmmaking in years ago and now coming back to it, I always felt and still feel every single person out there has an interesting story, equally interesting. It's just, are you a good enough storyteller to bring it out? Yeah, I love that. And see, that, that's one reason why my job as a clinician is never boring because I'm not really a clinician or a psychologist or whatever. I mean, in some ways I participate in a healing um, dance with people, but really what I think of myself as is, is somebody who tries to ask good questions to tap into those stories, to tap into the stories that aren't being told. And you're right, absolutely every person has a story. So when people are like, isn't, isn't your job depressing or don't you get bored? I mean, I encounter some heavy shit, don't get me wrong, but um, no, I don't get bored. People are endlessly fascinating. And to be honest, that's why, um, you know, I don't watch a, not that I think these things are morally repugnant or something, but, it, you know, I don't watch a lot of like television or, or reality shows or whatever, because, you know, human beings are the, are the I mean, I like documentaries because um, a good documentary really is, um, in my opinion, anyway, is looking at those stories, right? So those interest me. Um, 
But, you know, something on television, rarely will it ever measure up to the stories that I'm privileged enough to hear on a daily basis from people, you know. And the other thing is, isn't, isn't it depressing? And yeah, some, sure, I encounter some heavy shit, you know, so that, that's a part of the work that I do. But there, it's also really inspiring because um, you get to see uh, the magnitude of what human beings can overcome and how they navigate challenges in their lives. And then I'm lucky enough over 20 years so far then just to collect all these stories and I just get to have them. You know, hopefully I do some measure of justice to them and I take good care of those stories. And sure, it helps me in my work as a psychologist, but it also just helps me as a human because I get to see how human beings navigate these things. And, and to be honest, uh, a lot of those stories are really kind of magical. They don't have to be, you could miss the magic in them <laughs> if you chose to, but if you pay attention, there's a lot of magic involved to me. When I say magic, it's like things happen that are uncanny, inexplicable. I can't explain it, but, but it happens. And there's something in this sort of spirit of them as a human being and the spirit of the communities that are part of, you know? So no, in that way, it's not boring. Like I, I can't imagine a better job than being privy to these stories, listening to them, asking questions, trying to help enrich the stories being told. Love it. You just said something that I, I often say, which is human beings are endlessly fascinating, right? The, the human experience, there's magic in that experience and it's endlessly fascinating. So I never, obviously sometimes people, depending on their level of comfort, may not want to share any story with you, but when they do, it's I'm, I'm all in because it, it's never going to get old. See, that's, you just said something, uh, even as a psychologist, I tell people this, I don't take for granted people sharing their stories with me. I really don't. I don't think they owe me anything. And um, so for them to share stories, often stories they may not share with anyone else is like one of the greatest privileges I, I could imagine, you know? And, and so I, I think because of that, because I, I experience it that way, um, it really is like a gift when someone will share that with you, you know, that story. And then my job is to try to amplify it, right? To try to ask questions about it, to uh, in, in, enrich that story in such a way that it becomes alive and it, it, it travels with people in new ways into the future. That's great. Now, if all I did all day was um, sit around diagnosing people, yeah, I could see how my job would become really depressing and boring and a lot of things. But when, when you're focusing on stories and the ways in which we're talking about that's not boring at all it's an amazing privilege and it's one that you know like people talk about retiring or something not that I would work the same amount that I work now or something forever but like as long as I'm able I imagine wanting to do this in, in some form or another and because of what we're describing Ben I'll tell you that people will say oh well you're not a real therapist you know that's not therapy maybe not <laughs> I, I don't really care what you call it what I hope happens is that um, I don't know that everyone's coming to therapy for healing. I think a lot of people are. Maybe they'd use a different word, but I'm just going to use the word healing. Um, I hope that I, I, our conversations that, that we enter into can in some way be healing for people and help them move in the direction they want to go. I don't really call it, care if you call it therapy. I don't care what you call it. I just want uh, there to be some sort of healing or, or people sort of moving in directions they were hoping to move in. No matter what's happening, if healing is occurring, then who cares what it's called? Who cares what, you know, how society views this as a traditional model or, or um, an alternative model? The importance is healing. It's, it's interesting when you were talking about sort of the, the balance of having to deal with really heavy stuff and um, enjoying the work. It, it reminds me of, of, teaching in the Mississippi Delta, which, you know, is a, a section in the book and talking to friends and family, even now, I mean, it was a, a foundational two years of my life. And it's, it's about how, you know, systemic racism, poverty, um, trauma, abuse, all these things that, that um, are really heavy things. And yet the day-to-day -day experience, especially when I talk to other former colleagues, is just one of joy. Like, like teaching high school in the Mississippi Delta, I do one thing every single day I was gonna laugh because the kids are gonna say something funny, do something funny. And so it's this balance of 
the structure, which, I, which we'll talk about in a bit, the greater structures that are pressing down um, as oppressively as possible. And yet the day-to-day -day interactions are generally one of, of joy. See, and that, that to me, especially, I mean, I, I've always believed this to be important, but in the United States where I've, you know, been doing a lot of my therapy work, you know, actually sitting with people and doing that work. In the last two years, it's showing up. It's like a spotlight shined on this particular aspect, but, you know, binaries to me are often really destructive. And so then there's this idea of, well, it, it's, either, um, it's either a great job that helps you come alive and, you know, brings meaning to your life and all those good things, or, it's, it's a drain and it's bad and it's, you know, and, and binaries to me, I've observed them being really destructive and see the description that you just gave of your time teaching um, in the Mississippi Delta is exactly what I'm like, as human beings, I think we're tasked to hold all of that, you know, and, and so, um, and we find ourselves in the United States and it's my sense other places as well, but this is where I'm living now and I can really see it here, you, you know, everything's a damn binary you know it's like um either we with covid we lock ourselves um you know in our houses for the next three years or we just open her up and everything's fine and you know and it, it and of course you know um we have new strains of covid we have to be adaptable you know we have to invent and reinvent our ways of living we have to do this even without covid or we would do well to do it. we don't have to do it but i think it serves us well to do it um, but binaries prevent that, right? Like um, someone asked me about a New Year's resolution and I, I'm, that's not really so much my thing. I'm more of like, if something strikes me on a Tuesday in July as being important to my life, then let's get it on, you know? But I, I do understand New Year's resolutions can be organizing principles for people and that's cool. And I, I support it for people that like it, but it's just not for me. But someone asked me about that. Well, what, what's your New, New Year's resolution? I said, I don't really have one, but those aren't so meaningful for me. And, but then they sort of inquired like, well, what, what should I have? And, you know, I, I, I don't really, I'm not great at giving advice, but, you know, I said an interesting one for me has been that I've been wrestling with for a few years, try and exit filtering everything through an optimistic, pessimistic dichotomy, because that to me is really the thief of satisfaction in life. It's not actually whether you're an optimistic or pessimistic person. It's that everything gets filtered through that. Whereas, you know, going back to, to what you were saying with your time teaching, it sounds like you were kind of taking in all of these things. Maybe greater society, some would define it as optimistic and pessimistic. Well, what are your mix of optimism? No, no, just don't filter it through that lens, right? These are just life experiences and they're coming in. And we're going to interact with them differently. But why do we have to label them as optimistic or pessimistic or good or bad? Some of them will be unpleasant. Some of them will be more pleasant and everything in between, you know. But when we get out of that sort of dichotomy, I've noticed that not only do people feel better, but the stories we've been talking about have the potential then to become richer. Optimistic, pessimistic dichotomies don't make for very rich stories. Exactly. And, and it just covers over the nuance of, of what it is to be human. I can't remember the, the name of the poet off the top of my head, 19th century American poet who said, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I'm human, I contain multitudes. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, thinking of another conversation I had recently with a friend of mine, um, I don't know how we got to this, you know, it's one of those wide ranging films, you know, kind of like the conversation we were having a couple weeks back or whatever, you know. You That's just like, what I was thinking when you said that. <laughs> yeah, you could be in it for six hours and not even notice where the time's gone. But, you know, um, I, I, whatever we were talking about, it led me to this place where I said, look, if I was president of the United States, I would do shit I don't agree with. What I mean is I'd look back in a week or two weeks and I'd go, or maybe a month or two years, I don't know how long it would take. A lot of times in my life, it doesn't take too long where I look back and go, why did I do that? I'm not sure I agree with that. You know, so this idea of we contain multitudes and we contradict, of course I contradict. I mean, if I don't contradict myself, I must be very boring. If I contain no hypocrisy and hopefully I can begin to recognize that, you know, like I'm appreciative when people I love and trust point that out to me and it's like, oh shit. 
yeah, thanks. Because then I can, I can try and make sense of it. And, and, and when, when it makes sense, try to get rid of that hypocrisy or, or find some way to navigate it, you know, like thinking about watching the NFL. I mean, I, I'm a big hypocrite there because I still watch it. Not so much the NFL at large, but I watch the Broncos having grown up in Denver, you know, I'm a fan of them. And yet I really don't feel good about a lot of how the NFL operates. And I'm just this, this walking uh, hypocrisy and contradiction that I carry and I'm trying to make sense of. But I'd rather be aware of that and know that and try and feel it and it doesn't feel good. Like that to me is all necessary and important part of the human experience, you know? Um, so yes, we absolutely contain multitudes and we contradict ourselves. And I hope we do, because how boring would it be if I never contradicted my, I mean, what does that say about me and my life? I mean, I, that's a life that sounds so boring. I don't know if I could bear it. Exactly. So uh, I first found you through your TED talk, which my friend Dre sent me, which I'll link to in the show notes. Such a great talk. And I just rewatched it prepping for this. And one of the first things you talk about is how most interventions locate distress inside the person and to the exclusion of what, what are the forces distressing the person. And this goes back to, to what we said at the top in terms of what are the greater structures. And rather than locating the distress, let's look at dignity in each individual person, but let's look at, at the greater forces at work here. So I guess, and I think we talked about this off air a couple of weeks ago. My first question to, after watching the TED talk is, do we have, and, and this is paraphrasing you, do we have disordered people in the United States of America, or do we have a dis, disordered system? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question to start deconstructing, because I think that um, uh, our, our, the systems by which we live almost demand of us uh, and have, have tilled the soil in such a way that it, it's disordered people. It must be disordered. It must be an individualist prescription, which by the way, is great for uh, this version of neoliberal capitalism that we're currently living through, you know, late capitalist, racial capitalism, et cetera. Because if something is always wrong with us, then there's always something to sell us that will help us get better. Now, of course, the reality is it won't actually help us get better. You know, I, I was um, speaking with someone this week, uh, someone I work with in quote unquote therapy, whatever you want to call it, what it is that we do. And, you know, we arrived at this place where, and I, I've arrived at this place with a number of people over the years, where it's like what they were wanting was someone to come in and almost a hero and sort of pull them out of what was happening. And of course, that's unlikely to happen, right? But capitalism sells this idea. If you just find the right elixir, if you just, if you just go to therapy, the therapist will save me, right? Or if I just take this drug, whether that's a prescription drug or otherwise, right? If I just can have access to this chemical, I just go on this diet plan. If I just read this book, self-help book, which of course that's a ridiculous term, self-help, because the minute that you're reading someone else's words it's not of the self right someone you're, else is you, helping <laughs> right you're now in relationship with the author right this is one of the reasons we like reading so much i think those of us who like reading anyways because we're in relationship with the author essentially right so um the idea that we individually are problematic and it's internal and we just have to find the right thing to fix it very much suits the current system so i, I so do i believe that you know, these things are internalized inside the physical body. No, I mean, there are aspects of them that are, but I think when we look at the system, we understand how it's come to be this way. Now, to the, to the point about this, the larger systems and the roles that those larger systems play, it's often sneaky. It's hard to see, you know, it's, it's, it's like a point of saturation that happens throughout our lives that tells us uh, uh, and, and sort of mandates rules around who we can be and just as importantly if not more importantly who we cannot be right that, that we don't even think to question them we don't even think that it might be possible to live in opposition or to resist some of these rules about our identities and who we can be like the idea of work for example 
I mean, that's just taken for granted in the United States. You must, of course, you got to work. And, and within that, then, we disproportionately assign like value as a human being and even like moral value to whether or not a person is, first of all, what's work? Well, in this, you know, neoliberal late capitalist society, it, it, it's very clear that you're doing this for money and usually you're doing it to help make uh, people else. with a lot more money than you, money, yeah. right? And so, um, you know, there's just these prescriptions about who we can be and who we can't be, and like almost sort of moral ideas of what makes a good person and what doesn't. And when we start thinking about that, it's no wonder that people are miserable, right? Um, you know, first of all, and this is, I, I haven't seen research on this per se. If I had more time, maybe I'd do it. Maybe someone smarter than me listening to this will do, will do it and please share your the results to the work. But it's my humble assessment that as we've seen rates of what we call depression, anxiety, et cetera, skyrocketing, which they have over the last decade, this is not just a COVID thing. This also corresponds to the time when we become, we've become personal brands. Um, not just, we don't just work for a brand, we are the brand, you know? And if human beings start becoming brands, I'm not so sure that's great for mental health, right? Because uh, now our, our humanity, the, our dignity, as we were talking about earlier, um, is at risk because if my work is who I am, but not all my work is successful, however you wanna define success. Not all of it's successful. It doesn't always go the way I want it to go. In life, I'm more interested in slugging percentage than I am batting average. I'll take some big swings at things, so I'm going to miss sometimes. And I accept that that's sort of a condition of living for me, right? Um, but if I am the brand, then when I fail, it's not that my work didn't work out. It's now that I am a bad person, right? And so uh, I am a failure. And so this switch to me is a, a really important one. I, I mean, it's been around, but the way now you know, even I look at my own, I only have one social media, which is Twitter, but I look at that and, and the, the, the sub, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? Like the bio, you know, Profile. I, I, I struggle with that because that's some neo, neoliberalist, neoliberalist bullshit that's in my um, bio, you know? And so another hypocrisy of mine, I struggle with that. I, well, maybe I should just leave the thing blank. But on the other hand, you know, then I meet people like you and I look at your bio and it was like, gives me an idea of who you are. But so it's this like, mm -hmm tough line to walk, right? But I'm saying all this to say that um, that process is largely invisible. Most people aren't, you know, making a Twitter bio and going like, hmm, am I participating in neoliberal, neoliberal capitalist ways of, of acting and being in the world that actually aren't serving me and might be increasing my anxiety? I mean, you know, that's a weird thing <laughs> to sort of ask oneself. I don't blame most people for not asking those questions. And so then it just becomes a part of what we do. It becomes a part of the system, right? It beca we, and, and then this system is tiring people out. It's exhausting people. It's asking too much of people. It's, it's storing people uh, as their work, right? And, and that's where their, their most value is found in life. I could go on, but I hope this is just a, a, an introductory kind of example of how that happens. But then the problem is what we do is we go, oh, that person's depressed. And so it's something biochemical. And I'm not denying that there are likely some, some physiologic and biologic contributors. But, but what I am saying is to act as though that's a deficit of the person when, when the person's physiology was helped along by these external factors that we're talking about. Why wouldn't we address those? To try to do it from the inside out makes little sense to me because basically then what we're doing is we might be helping people find some solace, uh, some quote unquote self-care, whatever, just so they can go back out in the world and get exhausted again by the same system. That's not a sustainable action. Capitalism loves it. I mean, uh, I know meditation is, is something that's near and dear to your heart. You know, to seeing how you used it with the team was really cool. And I'm a fan of meditation. I, however, am not a fan of the way neoliberal capitalism uses meditation, which is essentially often, I should be careful my language, often uses meditation, which is basically a way to help people center themselves so they can work better, longer, right. and more Be efficiently. more productive. Right. Like this is, <laughs> I'm not a fan of that, right? I think that that's problematic. And, that, and so, you know, I, I often worry in therapy, I, I wonder sometimes if what we're doing is just, um, 
what, what, what I've been taught to do within my formalized training is to create better neoliberal capitalist subjects. And that that therapy says you are healthy when you've become a better neoliberal capitalist subject. That is, you know, you're in a romantic relationship, uh, you know, that fits the normative standards. You go to work, uh, you work X number of hours, you have a 401k, you, you know, whatever, you, you, you interact in normative ways. And that once we've achieved that in therapy, then we go, oh, we've helped you come from the depths of depression. Now you're a good neoliberal capitalist subject. Our work here is done. Right. I mean, to quote you back to you, why do we think removing a sick person from a sick system fixes anything? I, I, I don't. Um, and, 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 and I think, I hope that in, in my um, talk, which really isn't just my talk, right? Because yes, I was the one that was talking about it that day, but um, unfortunately the way TED Talks go, they're very individualist activities and they don't really give proper space to share that this is community knowledge, right? That I've had from great mentors, um, people in the community that have helped me get to that place, but somehow a light shining on you and now it's my TED talk, which is sort of bizarre as though the knowledge resides all within me. But yeah, I mean, it would appear if rates of depression, anxiety, trauma, et cetera, are continually going up, it would seem that what we're doing is not working very well, right, within the larger context. And, and it's also so inefficient. You, you know, like if what we're gonna do is wait, and, and this is what we're doing, we're actively doing it, we're gonna wait for the next mass shooting to occur. And then we're gonna try to treat the trauma after the fact. You know, we had another one of those shootings here in Denver, unfortunately, um, you know, so, this guy had written like alt-right books. I don't know if folks uh, nationally are seeing this stuff and then went out and had a hit list. It actually wrote about him in these books that sold pretty well and then went out and actually enacted this. Well, I guess it wasn't a fantasy. It was more of a game plan as it turns out, but it was right in Denver, you know, a few blocks from my office is where one of the shootings were. What we do is we wait for that to happen. And then, you know, corporations and other things offer money and help, which is, you know, in those moments, it's nice to help the community. Same thing with the fires that were here, right, in, uh, in the Boulder area. We wait till the thing happens, then we respond, which I'm not saying that it's bad to respond, but why aren't these corporations um, putting money up to really dealing with climate change, which is part of the reason why it was freaking 63 degrees or whatever it was that day, and there were 100 mile hour winds in December, you know, um, when we think about relationships with guns why aren't we waiting till the next mass shooting to do something instead of examining the culture right start thinking about guns and you know I, I, laws against guns i don't think are, are going to do much i'm more interested in how is it that guns have become a fundamental part of some uh, groups of people's like sense of self right so th this is where the problem lies is because it's not criticizing a gun then you're actually criticizing a person because the gun has become a part of their identity. You're, you're criticizing a person, a community, a way of living and believing about the world, right? Whereas in other places when, you know, like in Australia, however many years ago that was now, there's a picture of like those big uh, tanks that hold water, you know, after there was a shooting where I don't know, not very many people died. It wasn't necessarily like one of our mass shootings. People just came and threw guns in this thing, you know? And when I've been in Australia, New Zealand, other places throughout the world, um, I've been fortunate enough to, to travel to, they'll ask like, what's up with guns, you know, and you're, and I'll explain to them about the gun lobby and all that. And, you know, try to do my best. To, and after 20 minutes, they're like, yeah, I know, but what's up with the gun? Like, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Right. And the way I've come to understand it is the gun has become a part of one's identity. And so that uh, any measure to change how we might do that is now a personal, people feel it as a personal attack. And so I think we would do well to start to try to understand how have guns become a fundamental organizing part of personality for a group of people, right? Um, anyway, that's the sort of systemic part. But what we do is we wait until the next thing happens and then we try to treat the people who've been traumatized by the event. The, the, there's nothing we can do to prevent mass shootings says the only country in the world where mass shootings occur. Uh, and, and I think for both of us, it, this is all rooted in capitalism and, and the ugly dark truth about mass shootings is every time there's a mass shooting, 
gun sales go up. So consciously or subconsciously, there is a profit incentive for mass shootings to occur, um, to, 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 for gun stores, the NRA, donations, all of it. It's just, again, <laughs> is it a sick person or is it a sick system? Yes, and, and then, you know, we, we, when we label it as sick people, that creates more hopelessness, right? Mm -hmm. And then they come to this very individual's type of psychotherapy and it doesn't work. And then what they say is, oh, even the best therapist of the best therapy, I can't even do that, right? I failed right. the best therapy. I'm a failure. Not, it, it's, right. it roots lack of success in the individual weakness. As opposed to us then saying like, you know, I, I go back to... Um, some of my very early training when I was finishing my master's degree in Los Angeles and I was, you know, working in, in South Los Angeles in schools and in home therapy and, and this sort of thing. And I get why this was said because the system was burning out mental health workers. So I get it. I, I met, I get why they said it. And I was newer. So maybe um, I wasn't quite yet burnt out, but um, you know, they would say things like these kids aren't good candidates for therapy. To which, you know, uh, eventually... Which I, I right mustered... there, the, the, the first two words, these kids. Right. Right. I mean, again, <laughs> going, going back to binary, right? It's us and them. Yes. Right. And these kids means black and brown kids, right? 100%. These kids aren't good candidates for therapy. And eventually I mustered up the courage to say back, uh, well, have we stopped to think that maybe our therapies aren't good candidates for these kids? I'm putting these kids in air quotes, mm -hmm. no good on a podcast, but you know, sometimes we would do well to sort of reverse those kinds of questions, right? And see, like my field in particular, psychology has a long history of sort of blaming the people we work with, the quote unquote patients, you know, like, oh, they're being resistant. I, I don't believe in resistance. I, I, um, I don't. I, well, I do believe in resistance in that people are resisting systems. But I guess what I'm saying is, I believe people have good reasons for enacting resistance. And that um, if for some reason someone's quote unquote showing resistance with me in a therapy room, um, that's not about them. That's about me asking, what is it about the environment that I'm creating uh, that, that is in inadequate in terms of uh, creating a space where, where they feel more comfortable in sharing these things with me as opposed to calling them resistant. Right? So we have a long history of doing that kind of thing in psychology as opposed to you know maybe um, trying to call upon a little humility and looking at ourselves, which is not fun. I, I'm not claiming that's fun. Like, I don't like to think like, huh, maybe the environment I'm putting in place right now is insufficient in some way. I don't like that thought. I want to be successful. I want to do it in a way right from the bat, right from the jump. That's good. Right. But um, I don't always. And so then um, looking at what am I doing, the person with more power in the relationship, of course, to, to, you know, uh, how to, that's standing in the way of creating an environment. And that to me gets at the heart of if we're looking at these things systemically and we want to start doing that, like if people are interested in doing this, uh, it, it's an absolute imperative that people in positions of relative power uh, turn the gaze back on themselves. Like that's, that's what we have to do. So if we want to do this work, so, so when students are telling me over the last year, I've just stepped into a co-director role in academia here for the last year or so. And if students are telling me um, they're really struggling to get work done, I mean, one thing I can do is go back to the old dominant stories of, of my graduate school experience and go, well, what are you talking, you know, this is graduate school, you know, you better saddle up and get shit done. You know, I, I had no excuses. Well, I had, when I was in graduate school, I had to walk uphill, but, you know, all the, I can do that. And certainly those kick around, you know, cause that's, that's the environment I came up with. So those are there, not saying I've overcome them. They're kicking around in my mind. Or what I can do is say, um, how am I as a person with power, um, contributing to an environment that's making it more difficult for students during a pandemic and an attempted racial reckoning, how, how successful that was, I don't know, but all of this stuff is happening. What am I doing to help facilitate an environment that's taking into consideration all of those factors? As a, that, and I don't like that. I mean, I like the outcome sometimes, but that, that's hard. That's more work for me. It's already showing blind spots of what I'm missing and I'm not doing in my classes or not doing for the program. 
But it, it's also, if I want to be committed to this work, imperative that I do that. But the easier thing to go is, oh, these students these days are lazy. You know, the, oh, the generational story. That's always a fun right. one. These, uh, they're, they're, they're just lazy. They don't know how to work hard. They're entitled. They're, you know, practicing wokeism. I don't have time for that shit. You know, and I have, I have the power. I have disproportionate power. So I can do that. And I can fall back mm-hmm. on that story. But if people are interested in this idea of locating distress and problems within the culture, right, right, within the systems layered in the culture, then it's incumbent on people with power to take that gaze and turn it back at ourselves, which is unpleasant, at least for me. Uh, well, it's, it's change, right? And change always requires work. That's one of the, the key things when I think about coaching, and, the, and this is in the, in the book, that I'm not here to coach you. I'm here to try to help you be a better person. And you're here to try and help me be a better person. Or that there's a great quote from, a, from an Australian activist, Aboriginal activist that I just tweeted out, actually something along the lines of, you know, if you're here to help me, I don't need it. If you're here because your liberation is bound up in my liberation, then yes. Or to, again, to quote Travis Heath, back to Travis Heath, I think this, this was the key, one of the key sentences in your TED talk, the last sentence, your care is bound up in, in mine, in mine and yours. I think that's, you know, everything that we're talking about is capitalism is a system that pits us as individuals against each other and exploits us to earn money for other individuals. And I think kind of the, the root of both of our works is community. Yes, yes, and yes. You know, I'm thinking of uh, one of my mentors, David Epstein. Um, he talks about the importance of mutual gift gift giving in therapy, mutual gift giving. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, because the way that therapy has been set up traditionally, it's a one-way gift giving. I'm the therapist with all the answers and I, I give you the gifts and you say, oh, thank you, great therapist, that you have changed my life. But, you know, think about in, in whatever holiday or other traditions people might share within their cultures where they exchange gifts of some sort. I mean, it would be awful. I, I mean, when I was five, it would be great if I was the only one getting gifts because I was five. But as I got older, well, I don't even know if that's true. I think my five-year-old would be pretty bummed out if she couldn't give gifts to other people, right? We don't like that one way. Like we want to contribute too. We want a reciprocity that you give me a gift and I give one too, to you too, right? And there's, there's something about that, that this communal experience. And, and so often like in healing relationships, we set this up in one way dynamics um, as opposed to uh, all of the great gifts over the years I've gotten from you know, the people I've been in conversation with, which are so immense. And I share these with people and I say, I want you to know that um, these aren't just gifts that will help me as a therapist with other people I see, they are that, but they're also gifts that will help me as a human being. Like what I've learned from your story, uh, the wisdom that I've gained, gained from it um, has left an indelible mark that will travel with me. I can't tell you how it'll show up. I don't know. I, I can't predict the future, but I know it's there. I can feel it. And, and I've done therapy for 20 years or so now. So I've done it long enough to see that it does in my own life. You know, I work with couples and what they're going through, for example. And then in my own life, in my own relationship, some of their wisdom finds me and it makes me a better partner, better husband, right? Um, working with people as they're struggling with parenting, you know, makes me a better parent, um, and, and, and these are the things that if we're open to that reciprocity, right, if we're open to learn from the community, um, will not only help us in our jobs as coaches, therapists, whatever the hell we, we might do in the world, um, it also helps us personally in our own lives. Um, and that's an underrated aspect of doing this job. Somehow we're not supposed to admit that. I remember when I started as a therapist, I wanted, because I, I, I was probably deeply insecure about it, which is normal, I think, when as a therapist anyway, where there's this person in distress and they're like, help me. But I wanted to be the one who rode in on the stallion to save the day, right? So that they would go, oh, great therapist, you did this for me. And much like you talk about in the book, in your coaching style of sort of getting out of the way, I think it was the middle school uh, game when you first tried that, when you just sat up, you know, you Phil Jackson did, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. I could call it that. And then, you know, in the pro ranks, you, you know, you, that came to your aid in different ways, but you adjusted as you went. But the point is like, you know, um, sometimes uh, just just the ability to to 
uh, center, in your case, the players, in my case, the, the conversational partner, the client, the patient, center their experiences, let, let them become the heroes of their own narratives and understanding that my job is not to be in that role. My job is to help this story come alive, right? And to sort of sit in the background and, and revel in, in you being in that spotlight, you know? Love it. It's so that, that of course, comes into play later. I can't remember exactly how I phrased it in the book, but there's a point where it's the key moment of the championship game. And uh, I sit down, I just I, I sit down and, and let whatever's going to happen, happen. And I wrote something along the lines of, you know, this was the culminate sitting down and not doing anything was the culmination of me as a coach, like it, I'd hit, I'd hit the mountaintop. But, but, but in essence, if I might, and you can tell me if I have this wrong, I wonder if you actually were doing something there. I mean, you weren't doing some kind of action, but, but what you were doing, what, what, what that, what might that have communicated to the players in those moments, right? I'm, I'm speculating and each player could be a little different, but I trust you, you know, we've prepared for this moment. We're here. I know, you know, and just even the way you operated in timeouts at certain points and, you know, where you would just sort of step aside and the players would run the huddle, you know, um, and again, coaches are different. Uh, so coaches have to find their own styles and there are different ways to be successful. But, you know, I admired that because it's so doing nothing sometimes is quote unquote, doing nothing, maybe, maybe looking like you're doing nothing. You know, when, when I was consulting in the NBA, I, uh, you know, one of, one of my, I won't name him cause I haven't asked for his consent to share this story, but he, he, uh, I mean, he coached in the college ranks. He coached in the NBA. He coached overseas in China. He's you know, he's one of these lifers. He's scouted. He's done the whole thing. I remember we were sitting in um, summer league and I won't mention the coach in summer league too, because, you know, that's not the point, but this coach was up and just, you know, doing all these histrionics and yelling and screaming. And he says to me, and I'm at this time, I'm like 29 years old, something like that. So, so he goes, Hey, you know, my wise mentor goes, Hey, look at that guy. He's a fucking fool. You know, um, you know why he's doing that shit? I don't remember what I said. I, you know, I didn't have a good answer. And then he said, he's doing that because he wants to look like he's doing something. He wants to justify his own existence. And he said, you know, um, you don't have to be like that guy. You know, don't justify your own existence. Like feel, um, feel comfortable in what it is that you're doing, you know? And, and obviously I'm sharing the story with you now. So it stuck with me, but I remember watching that. And again, I don't, it's not that individual coach. This is part of what we've been taught to do as coaches, right? It, there's dominant, where, kind of where we started this conversation, dominant behavior, you know, dominant expectations of behavior, et cetera, right? And if we're not careful, we fall into that. The Mike Krzyzewski, the Bob Knight, you know, you talk some about that in the book as well. And then, you know, I think sometimes it can really take some courage to break free from that. But I'm not sure it was that you were doing nothing. In fact, in some ways, you might have actually been doing more than the people that are participating in the histrionics on the sidelines. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's really the act of doing was creating a framework and a culture and a system where the players are in charge. And so by sitting down and letting the players be in charge, I was acknowledging the strength of that, of that framework. It's interesting. Um, the there are three NBA coaches that I can think of that have done something similar. And of course it was Phil Jackson that really inspired me. And it's been lovely. Actually, I'm in touch with Phil Jackson. We've had a nice email correspondence back and forth. It's really cool how the internet lets you get in touch with people. But so almost every timeout, I would just let the players run the timeout. And I've seen three coaches do that. Popovich, Kerr, Phil Jackson. All, champ mm. all multiple championship winning coaches. So back to your point in your story, because the structure and the system and the story that the NBA, the NCAA tells us is that a coach has to always actively be doing something. If your normal non-championship, non-multiple championship winning coach call the timeout and let the players, even though these are NBA players who have a greater understanding of this game than anybody else on planet earth, let them discuss what to do the blowback would be so great from sports writers, from TV, from management that you, you couldn't sustain it. 
right? And if I might say, there's the power of dominant stories, right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, if, if, if we are going to act not in accordance with dominant narratives that often aren't seen as narratives or stories or discourses, they're seen as truth, they're seen as the way you do it, there's huge risk involved with that. You know, and and I certainly bring that up when I'm working with people, whether it's clients in psychotherapy or some of the sports uh, consulting that I do and all of that is, yeah, like this, there's risk involved with it. It, it doesn't come free from risk. Um, the good thing about athletes and coaches is that often they're not averse to risk, you know, and so bringing that up with them is like, yeah, okay, that there will be risk involved, um, you know, and and often that risk is felt really intensely initially, you know? Um, but then after a while, if, if you can stick to it, it it's not felt as much, you know? Uh, it, but, and in this day, I mean, it does make a difference this day and age because everyone's a critic. I mean, Phil Jackson, maybe in his time with the Knicks as the GM, there was, you know, he existed a little bit in this sort of Twitter world, but you know, everyone's a critic. I don't know how the hell people watch these games um, while they're tweet, first of all, my mind can't do that. I have to do one or the other. But, you know, in the second quarter, the coach is a bum and he's fired and he's horrible. By the fourth quarter, he's a hero. And, and, and that's all in the course of a single game. I mean, of course, yes, there's always been this sort of pattern in sports, but it's just accelerated. And, um, you know, it, so it, those, those are real. And, and not just coaches, but people in their lives. I mean, the way that these dominant discourses and stories about who we should be are circulated these days and how quickly they're circulated and how sort of visibly and viscerally they're circulated, you know, can make it really tough to even consider breaking free from them. Right. Somebody, one of the podcasts I was on, an interviewer asked me, did I think I could be successful using these methods in the U.S.? And I said, Yes, I mean, the, the methods, meditation, team, decision-making, all of that are, are proven. It's not a guarantee, right? It just maybe increases the odds in your favor. And, and also, I think just long-term are, are a better way to interact with people. But if I were just a new, say, high school coach, not uh, new to the community, you know, you have to get to the point where you've won enough games that you can do all this stuff. And I don't know if I could get to that point just because, again, it, it looks so different. So back to the idea of sports and the stories that, that we tell ourselves and that society tells us and so forth. The NCAA, what, what are the stories the NCAA tell? Let me, let me rephrase this. Is the NCAA a disordered system? <laughs> and, and I say that, that I think question. we're at 100% agreement on the answer of, of this. Yes, absolutely. It is. I mean, um, look, I think sometimes things start from a really good place. You know what I mean? I, I, like, I, I'm not convinced. Um, I would have to look deeper into the history. I reserve the right to be wrong, but I'm not convinced it started from a bad place, you know, but capitalism and other things got wrapped up into it. Right. And, and, and so now you have coaches making millions of dollars and play Well, I guess now players can start making money and all of that. But, you know, where it started, though, I think was from a good place. It's, you know, um, students can play sports and, and you know, it, it can help fund their education. And I don't think that was necessarily such a bad thing. But money and then lots of money got involved with it. And then, you know, the sort of separation between the separation of power, status, money with coaches versus athletes got to a certain point where, you know, it just became laughable. And, and really that point was over a decade ago, at least, you know, so it took a long time for it to be addressed. You, you know, the, the other thing is, I don't like, don't treat me like I'm dumb. So, so, you know, student athletes, and I'm really not criticizing the athletes here. I'm criticizing the NCAA and the powers that be in the language that they use, you know, was John Wall a student athlete? I don't know, maybe he's a great student, but that's not the point. That's not why he was going to Kentucky. He was going to Kentucky because he was not allowed to go straight to the NBA at that time. And now there are, you know, more people are doing overseas or, you know, G League or whatever. But um, he was going because that's, he had to go there for a year before he could go to the NBA. You know what I mean? Why should he have to pretend like he's a student? That's silly. If he wants to, great. And then he has that opportunity. 
but especially for so many of the elite uh, players, you know, um, don't lie to me. Like we all know what's going on. You know what I mean? And then, you know, the way that they, uh, you know, a player ends up with a Range Rover or whatever from an agent and then the player suffers in some way. It's ridiculous. You know, um, why shouldn't the player get it? You, you know, so, so, and then, you know, the coaches can come and go as they please, but, uh, you know, historically, it, I guess, might be becoming a little easier, but historically really difficult for uh, players to make lateral moves, you know, or, or moves that would better serve them, but are you know, D1 to D1 transfers. So all of these things were rigged in a way where the coaches who are making the most money, uh, athletic directors, et cetera, they can move around as they please in a business setting and the players can. I mean, so, so that all of that to me is a joke and maybe some of it's starting to be rectified now, but, you know, just call it what it is. That's, that's kind of where I come from. And I worry also, even though players can start earning money, it goes back to that idea of being a personal brand, right? Name it, image likeness. And so again, you're on that treadmill of of having to sell yourself for money. Travis, this has been great. Uh, I have a feeling that this is the the second of of many of a years long continuing conversation uh, that you and I are going to be engaged in, hopefully. And uh, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time and coming on. Well, listen, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it's been good getting to know you. Yeah, hopefully we'll do it again in multiple different forms, whether, you know, on, on formal microphones or otherwise. I really enjoyed uh, reading your book. Um, I appreciate the work that you're doing. And, you know, I, I will say this before we close, which is, you know, a lot of bad things get said about social media and, and Twitter and all these things. And, I'm not saying those things aren't real, and uh, but it really is just a medium, and I suppose it depends on how we use it, to be honest. But I also want to say, you know, Dre introducing us through Twitter and, and coming to know you in that way. I mean, there are, you know, some really great things that happen through social media as well, and some really cool relationships that get formed. And um, I guess maybe I'm telling the alternative stories, right? That the dominant story is that Twitter is trash or whatever, and um, Sure, there are elements of that, and I, I can see how that happens. But uh, to, to make the story a little richer, I just want to uh, say that I, I feel really fortunate that we came to know one another uh, through that medium. Yeah, me too. And and I got to know Dre through social media. So it's same. It, Twitter is if you curate it right, uh, it really can be a helpful tool. If you curate it wrong, it's a hellscape. Well said. Speaking of books, you have a book coming out in June. Maybe just give us the, the title and people can pre-order it. God, the title. Um, I don't know. It's changed so many <laughs> damn times. Um, yeah, well, thanks for saying that. And uh, yeah, if people are interested in narrative therapy or really um, what this book is, is it's just stories of therapy. Um, imagine reading fiction, but it's actually a true story of what's happened in therapy. The fancy word is autoethnography. So I think uh, let me, I have the title somewhere on my little pad here. Let's see, Reimagining Narrative Therapy Through Practice Stories and Autoethnography. That's the title from Routledge Publishing. Um, so, you know, if you're into therapy and stuff, you might like it. But also if you just, you know, want to kind of pull the curtain back and hear stories of like, what what is it like in the therapy room? And, you know, for example, um, I share a story in there. There's a chapter of me working with a Trump supporter. I'm not a Trump supporter, in, in case people didn't know, um, but I, I'm not. Uh, um, so what, how, how I basically wrote the chapter to try to explain it to myself. I still don't know if I understand it, but she said we did good work together and I trust her and that we did, but I was, how the hell did this happen? And it was right after Trump was elected, you know, and then you can kind of see my thoughts and feelings as I go through the meetings too, which I hope is helpful because you can see all the doubts that I have and um, should I ask this question? Should I not? And I think a lot of times people look at seasoned therapists and they think, oh, they just feel confident and have all their shit together, which couldn't be further from the truth, at least for me. I mean, I have all kinds of doubts and I'm not certain. And I don't, is this even going to work? And I have those thoughts all the time. And so my hope is that, you know, if people were to read that, they would see that, um, I, I say this, I hope I'm right, but most of us therapists that have even been doing it for a long time, that doesn't go away. Much like a coach, right? Like you could coach for as many years. I don't care if you're Phil Jackson, you have more rings than fingers or whatever. Like you, you go into a game and I guarantee you, you have doubts and you wonder, oh God, you know, do I, do I even know what the hell I'm doing? And so 
um, I hope that the book portrays the sort of realness of the process as opposed to like some of the books I've read where I read it and I'm like, I could never be as good as this. That, you know, <laughs> I don't stand a chance, you know. Um, I, I hope it, it shows some of the messiness involved in the work. Fantastic. And please tell people where they can find you on Twitter. Yeah, so my Twitter handle is drtraviseath. So that's, um, yeah, you can find me there. And it would be good um, to cultivate more of this kind of community that, that you're talking about. Exactly. Thank you, sir. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was my conversation with Travis Heath. You can find all of my work at benbo.substack.com. That's B-E-N-B-O.substack.com. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a minute and rate the podcast on your platform of choice. Thank you and have a great day.